Hello and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. I'm Yael Ziegler and we're going to be picking up here in Perak Zayin Pasuka Aleph in our third installation on Parshat Vayera. We are really in the middle of this section in which God is once again appointing Moshe to his mission and once again Moshe is hesitating and we spoke last time about some of the complexities and difficulties of this section. In the previous Pasuk, at the end of the last section, we have Moshe speaking before God and once again saying, in any case, despite all of your encouragement, despite the way in which you, uh, you the, the Torah spells out here the genealogy of Moshe, which seems to be designed also to show Moshe's qualifications for representing God. And despite the fact that God keeps saying to Moshe, I'm sending you to do this, uh, still again, Moshe says before God, I am a, a uncircumcised uh, of uncircumcised lips, and how will Paro listen to me? And here he he certainly doesn't even give a, an actual reason for it, as he did previously in Perak Vav Pasuk Yudet, where he said, "Hey Bnei Israel, lo shemuelai, ve'ech yishma'ini Paro, v'ani aral sfatayin. Bnei Israel didn't listen to me, and how can Paro listen to me? And I am of uncircumcised lips." And here Moshe just sort of blankly states. I'm not, I can't do it. And it does remind us of the end of Perak Dalid, the end of the story of Ma'amad Hasne, uh, when Moshe says to God after several times of uh, explaining why he objects to being chosen for this mission, at the very end he says, Shlach Nabiati Shlach, send in the hands of who, of in whom that you will send. And God becomes angry at Moshe. And at that point, he actually um, appends Aharon here alongside Moshe, and he says Aharon is going to be the spokes the spokesperson for you. He'll be your spokesman. Um, you know, I'll speak to you, and you will speak to him all of the things that I've spoken to you. And we have a similar kind of response here. So once again, I think uh, it harks back to our discussion in Parak Dalid as to whether or not appointing Aharon alongside Moshe represents some sort of punishment for Moshe, perhaps especially given the fact that Moshe does not create a dynasty that continues, while Aharon does become the progenitor of the kehuna, of the priesthood. Um, in any case, though, here we have God once again in Parakzayin, Pasuk Aleph, saying to Moshe, Ve'yomer Adonai el Moshe, Elohim Behold, I have made for you, I'm going to leave aside for a moment the translation of Elohim here. Behold, I have made for you an Elohim for Paro, and Aaron, your brother, he will be your Navi. He will be the one who speaks your words. You will speak all that I command you. And Aaron, your brother, will speak to Paro. And he, and he will send, meaning Paro will send, B'nai Israel from his land. This seems to be a somewhat repetitive section. In fact, it repeats twice that Aharon, your brother, will be the spokesperson. It does seem to have a bit of a structure here in which God says to Moshe, you know, I've given you as this uh, Elohim lefaro, but now I've added Aharon to be your spokesperson. So we first have Moshe speaking to Paro, and then we have Aharon being Moshe's representative. In the next section, we have Moshe right in the center, where God says, Ata et 
you will be the one who speak everything that I command. In other words, it sounds like Aharon will not be receiving direct communication from God. And then once again, we go back to Aharon speaking this time to Paro, and we end with Paro's uh, sending the people out of the land. So if you look at it, it actually seems to be a bit of a chiastic structure. We have Paro, Aharon, Moshe, Aharon, Paro. This structure, I think, tells us something a little bit about the, um, the, the objective. The goal ultimately is to, in this section, is to get Paro to release Amisrael from slavery. Um, and what seems to be the movement here is that even though Moshe has been chosen for this task and he appears at the center of this task, God concedes and allows Aharon to enter into this picture so that uh, it seems as though Moshe will not be speaking directly to Aharon. I will say a word or two about the word Elohim. What does it mean when God says to Moshe, I have made for you an Elohim for Paro? Does it mean that he's making him a god in Paro's eyes? Well, Rashi here suggests that Elohim means judge or perhaps enforcer of punishment, as we have in other places in the Torah, such as in Shemot, Perak, Kaf, Aleph, in which case what it means is I have made for you the judge for Paro, the enforcer of punishment for Paro, which certainly is a reasonable reading. However, uh, some Midrashim do claim that Paro was meant to regard Moshe, if not as a deity, which some Midrashim actually do uh, suggest that, uh, given that Paro regarded himself as a deity, he could really only respect someone who seemed deity-like in his eyes. Uh, the Ibn Ezra says that the Elohim here was something similar to that, but that uh, Paro was meant to regard Moshe with the Ma'alat Malach as some sort of um, some sort of angelic-like figure in terms of his authority vis-a-vis Paro. Let's look at Paragzayim Pesuk Gimel. Va'ani akshe et leiv paro, and I, says God, I will harden the heart of paro, v'hir b'iti et utatai ve'et muftai be'eretz Mitzrayim, and I will increase my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. V'lo yishma alechem paro, and paro will not listen to you. V'natati et yedi b'mitzrayim, and I will place my hand against Mitzrayim, and I will take out my hosts, my people, the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, with great judgments. Mitzrayim will know that I am God. When I spread out my hand over Egypt, and I will take B'nai Israel out of them. So here we have the final sort of movement in, in, or the final words of God here in this section, where God explains that he's going to harden Paro's heart so that he can bring his signs and his wonders against Mitzrayim, pretty much, I think, for two, two purposes here. One is in order to bring Am Yisrael out of Egypt, but for that, of course, God doesn't need to harden Paro's heart. He needs to allow Paro's heart to be open to the possibility of letting the people go. But rather, the ultimate goal seems to be that there should be this uh, knowledge of God, this recognition of God. Let's not forget that back in Parakei, Pasuk Bet, when Moshe and Aaron first came to Paro, Paro's response was, Mi Hashem asher et Yisrael. 
לא ידעתי את השם, וגם את ישראל לא אשלח. פרעה's first response was, I don't know this God. Who is this God that I should listen to him? And so here God says, well, I will harden Paro's heart for the purpose of making sure that Paro, not just Paro, the Mitzrim, perhaps also not just the Mitzrim, the universe at large, everyone now will see God's might. And I'm not going to talk for the moment about the uh, philosophic moral question of God hardening Paro's heart. This is a question that has gotten a lot of attention over the course of years of biblical interpretation, whether it's in the Midrashim or medieval Parshanut or medieval philosophy. The Rambam, of course, was very, um, was very interested in this question. I'm just going to leave it aside for the purpose of our, uh, of our shiur. I'm simply going to say that what we have here is, I think, a very ind- clear indication that the goal of, taking, of, of, of giving uh, the Mitzrim these punishments is not just to get Am Yisrael out of Mitzrayim uh, and not just to punish them. I called it punishments, but let's say these plagues, but also in order to make sure that there is knowledge of God in the world. And that it certainly seems to be part of the goal. Of course, in contrast to what God said at the beginning of this section, where he said, you know, I'm going to take Am Yisrael out of Mitzrayim, bishpatim gedolim. He said that in Perak Vav, Pasuk Vav. But the goal there was, vidatem ki ani Hashem lokechem. And then you will know, you being Am Yisrael, there are two goals to Yitzhak Mitzrayim. One is that Am Yisrael should know God, that there should be a national uh, experience of recognition of God's might, of recognition of God's presence in the world. But here, towards the end of this section, we shift our attention to a second goal, which is that these plagues are being brought to bear upon Egypt so that Egypt will know that I am God. And now we bring this section to an end. Perek Zayn Pasuk Vav, Vayas Moshe Ve'aron, Kasher Tziva Adunai Otam, Ken Asu. Moshe and Aaron did that which God commanded them, so they did. This is a very uh, important moment. This is a very harmonious pasuk. We see all sorts of similar psukim in the continuation of the Torah. It suggests, and here I think it's, it's very significant, that Moshe has accepted not just God's authority, but accepted his role, everything that God tells him to do, he will do. And at no other point in the Yitzhak Mitzrayim story are we going to see Moshe question his ability to convince Paro to lead the nation, to take Am Yisrael out of Egypt, or to do the job which God has now sent him to do. So this formal pasuk, which sort of seems to uh, nicely end the story, very clearly ends the story with the sense that we have resolved the problem of who is going to now represent Am Yisrael and who's going to represent God to Paro. Um, one, let's just read this final pasuk, Moshe ben Shmonim Shana, Aaron ben Shalosh Ushmonim Shana, Bidabaram el Paro. Moshe is 80 years old and Aaron is 83 years old when they spoke to Paro. So this word Daber appears here in this final pasuk. Professor Kasuto points out that the word Daber has appeared 14 times, a critical multiple of seven, 14 times since the beginning of the section, which began in Paragvav Pasuk Zion, of course, at the beginning of uh, Parshat Vaira. Um, and one of the interesting um, uh, ways in which the word Daber appears is that seven times it appears with regard to divine discourse, 
seven times about human discourse, whether it's Moshe or Moshe and Aharon, which of course underscores the very idea of this section about the meeting of speech between God and Moshe in terms of uh, Moshe's job to represent God and speak God's word before Paro and also to B'nai Israel. So that the word Daber here is uh, really underscores the very purpose of the section, who is going to become God's spokesperson and, uh, and you know, on what basis. And so we have this rather complex ending in which both Moshe and Aharon begin to do the job of being Hashem's spokesperson. However, before we begin the plague story, we seem to have this sort of intermediate section, which begins in Perak Zion Pasukhet. Vayomer Adonai el Moshe ve'el Aharon lemor. Ki edaber alechem paro lemor. Tenu lachem mofet. Ve'amarta el Aharon kach et matcha ve'hashleich lifnei faro yehi litanin. So God says to Moshe and to Aharon saying, when uh, Paro speaks to both of you saying, give me a wonder, show me a sign, and you, should, you Moshe, should say to Paro, take your staff and throw it before Paro, and it will become a tanin, which is commonly translated a crocodile. Um, now, what we're going to have in the continuation here, we're going to have the actual execution of this of this command. Um, the question as to what this section is really doing here is, uh, is, is, is an important question. Is this section in which Aharon and Moshe are going to stand before Paro and take a staff and turn it into a crocodile, then that staff will, that crocodile will swallow all of the other uh, staffs that turn into crocodiles from the Paro's magicians. Is this a prelude to the Makot section, what is its its purpose in relation to the next section where we begin actually with the first plague, the plague of, of blood, or is this some sort of an epilogue to the previous section in which Moshe and Aaron are establishing their credentials before Paro? That was very much part of the previous section in which God is telling Moshe and Aaron that they can go to Paro as his representatives. And here, in fact, they begin that process as well. Sforno here notes that when uh, this section begins, God says to Moshe and Aaron, uh, you should give for yourselves a sign. And he asks the rather, I think, uh, important question, why a sign? Why not an oat? And perhaps what's the difference between an oat and a mofet? What's the difference between a sign and a wonder? And he distinguishes on the basis of his understanding of some of the different psukim, which use oat and mofet, that an oat is to prove the messenger's um, uh, that the messenger is authentic, whereas a mofet throughout this story seems to be to prove that the one who sent the messenger, namely God, is all powerful, and so that this mofet is to almost as it seems to be a prelude to the makot section. That before we open the makot section, Moshe and Aaron come to do this great wonder before Paro, so that Paro will be prepared to understand that, in fact, God is all-powerful. Um, it's interesting that he you know, notes that a lot of times, or several times in the story, uh, for example, in Pergdalid Pasuk of Aleph, when God sends Moshe specifically to go to Paro, he uses the word mofet. He says in Pergdalid Pasuk of Aleph, Re'e kol hamoftim asher samti biadecha, 
do moftim before Paro, whereas that generally when Moshe comes to convince the people of Israel, in other words, when he comes to convince Am Yisrael, he invariably refers to otot that he is doing, and that, says the Sforno, is designed to establish that Moshe is an authentic representative of God, but not necessarily to establish to the people the uh, the power of God, the power of the sender. And so that seems to be one general approach to this section, which in, uh, in that sense seems to function as a prelude to the Makot section. The Abarbanel says something a little bit different. He focuses on the word lachem, tenu lachem mofet, and he says that the purpose of this section is to establish first and foremost Moshe and Aaron's credentials before Paro. Perhaps for this reason, I'm suggesting this, uh, the, this section is focused more on Aharon than on Moshe. Uh, Aharon, of course, being the one who is actively engaged in communication with Paro. There is something unusual in this introduction, uh, in that regard, in which God begins by speaking to Moshe and to Aharon, and yet as we continue, as we progress through this section, it's clear that he's speaking to Moshe and telling Moshe that it's his responsibility to speak to Aaron. And so we get a little bit of a sense of the complexity of the chain of communication, as we saw in the last section. In any case, it seems clear that we are very focused on Aharon in this section, specifically Aharon in his relationship here with the Khartoumim. There seems to be some sort of showdown between Aharon and these magicians, and it's his staff that is thrown down on the ground in this first in this initial confrontation with Paro uh, as a prelude to this the Makot section. <clears throat> I, think, I don't think it's coincidental that this uh, sign or this wonder that is done here reminds us of one of the signs that God gave to Moshe at the Mamad Hasne when Moshe expressed his one of his objections. Uh, that Am Yisrael will not believe him. So God gives Moshe a series of signs in Perak Dalit, and one of them, of course, is that Moshe should take a staff and throw it to the ground, and the ground and the staff turns into a snake, and we spoke about it there. Uh, the fact here that Aaron does a very similar sign again suggests that Aaron is taking part of, uh, of, of the responsibilities, of the burden off of Moshe, and beginning to bear it himself. Okay, so let's see how this story plays out. We'll turn to Paratzayin Pasuk Yud. Vayavo Moshe Aaron el Paro, vayasu chen ka'asher tziva Adonai, vayashlech Aaron et matehu lifnei Paro v'lifnei avadav, vayhi litanin. It's a Moshe and Aaron come to Paro, and they do that exactly which God had commanded them. Of course, here we're getting have that harmonious sense that, in fact, Moshe and Aaron are now fully engaged and fully apart, fully enlisted in taking upon themselves this role as God's representatives. And Aharon is actually doing the, he's functioning as the intermediary here and he, between Moshe and Paro. And so he throws down his staff before Paro and before Paro's servants, and it becomes a tanin. Now I had, um, I had translated tanin previously as crocodile, there is a bit of controversy about this. Of course, crocodile is something which is very, uh, very powerful animal, common to Egypt. It is, uh, in some sense, it seems to be here, a symbol of Egypt. This is certainly something that the Midrashim pick up on, especially in light of the fact that in Yechezkel, Perak Kaftet, which is actually the Haftarah for this week's Parsha, for Parshat Ve'era, 
um, Paro describes himself, or the Yechezkel describes Paro as Hatanim Hagadol, Harovetz Betoch Yeorav, that great Tanim, which is who is swimming within his, in his Nile, and so we have this sense, cruel and ferocious crocodile who has no natural predators, is an apt metaphor for this strongest human in the ancient world. And so we have here this, uh, almost this sense that the tanina, if it is in fact a crocodile, represents paro. Um, some of the mefarshim, however, actually say, Rashi, uh, Sforno, a few other mefarshim say that in fact the tanin is another word for a snake. Sometimes, in fact, in several psukim in Tanakh, the tanim is interchangeable with a nachash, with a snake. And perhaps we'll see in a few minutes, or we'll see perhaps in the next year, why, in fact, Rashi insists on this interpretation of the tanin. In any case, it pretty much means something very similar, whether the tanin is a snake or whether it's a crocodile. It seems to be pretty clear that it's a symbol for the power of Paro in particular, and maybe the power of Egypt in general. But of course, in this case, we have Aharon's staff, and the staff, as we said in uh, our examination of Perak Dalid, somehow symbolizes authority and rulership. It's Aharon's staff that turns here into a tanin, and of course, this tanin is going to threaten the tanin, the power of Paro. So let's see what happens in the next pasuk, pasuk Yud Aleph. Ve'yikra gam Paro lachachamim ulemechashfim ve'asu gam hem chartumei mitzrayim Bilatehem ken. And Paro called, also called, to his wise people and to those who do witchcraft. And they also did, those magicians of Egypt, with their magic devices, they did a similar thing. And each person threw down his staff. And they became these tininim, whether they're crocodiles or they're snakes. But the, the, the staff of Aharon swallowed their staff. So I think that there's really a lot of uh, symbolic meaning to what has just occurred. First of all, whatever it means that these magicians are able to turn their staffs into snakes, and there's a tremendous discussion about this, which I'm not going to get into right now, but whatever it means literally, what it means symbolically, I think, is very significant. Even if the the witchcraft and the and the chartumim, the magicians of Egypt and his chachamim, his wise men, can somehow conjure up the power of the crocodile or the power of the snake, ultimately the staff of Aaron will swallow that power and will swallow that um, because he is the representative of God. So there's the point that's being made here is that. Both the staff of Paro will be swallowed by the staff of Aaron, and also the way in which that staff expresses power through the power of the Tanin, that also pales in comparison to the power of Aaron, given that Aaron is the representative of God. Make one more point here about the Khartoumim, and that is, of course, that we've seen these Khartoumim, these magicians of Mitzrayim before. Uh, in our in the first case in which we saw them, it was in the story of Yosef. After Paro has this dream in which his seven thin cows are swallowing the seven fat cows, or actually they're eating, they're consuming the seven fat cows, we actually do have the word swallowing in the second dream in which the seven uh, unhealthy sheaves are eating the seven very uh, plump sheaves. 
And there, again, Paro is very anxious, or there Paro is, is uh, quite um, uh, fearful of his dreams. And in the morning, he calls his chachamim and his chartumim in order to see if they can interpret the dreams. They, of course, cannot interpret the dreams to his satisfaction, and that's, of course, when Yosef becomes the one who can interpret Paro's dreams, and at the end of the story, of course, Paro also acknowledges Yosef's God. Um, th this seems to almost give us a sense, once you have all of these connections, that that is partially where we're moving towards in this story as well. We have at the very opening of the story the same Khartoumim who seem to be quite confident in, in, in their power. And of course, Paro seems to place a great deal of faith in them. And, uh, and even though they are able at first glance to, uh, to, to turn these, their staves into Teninim, um, in the end, as it turns out, these magicians will be forced to acknowledge that their power is not equal to that of God. They're going to say that several times, several times once in the plague of lice, when the Khartoumim say to Paro, Etzba Elohim Hu, and then this a similar thing is going to happen later on. First of all, of course, we're going to see that the Khartoumim are not going to be able to stand up during the Shrin because they, in fact, are also smitten with Shrin. And finally, of course, Paro is going to call Moshe and Aaron and to recognize that, that God is Hatzadik, that God is the powerful one, that uh, all of this has happened because God's power trumps his. And this begins here in this showdown between Aharon and the Khartoumim. The fact that this showdown recalls the story of Yosef already gives us a sense of where this is going and where this story ultimately is going to wind up in terms of the power struggle between e Egypt and, uh, and God's power. But we'll conclude this section with Perigzayn Pasuk Yud Gimel, Leichezak Lev Paro, and Paro's heart was hardened, Velo Shama Alehem Ka'asher Diber Adonai. And he did not listen to them, just as God had said. And therefore, already beginning in the next Pasuk, we are going to have the beginning of the Makot section. We won't be beginning it today. It opens with the Makat Dam, which is, of course, yeah, that, that first Makah, which we'll begin to speak about in our fourth installment, in our next installment of Parshat Veirah.